Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Monday, May 17th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. The microscopic error with major implications that seems to have delayed public health officials in acknowledging the aerosol transmission of COVID-19. Why Shrek continues to endure as a touchstone of internet culture and how it changed the game for animated films. And a quick look at two new video games doing some good in the world. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Does COVID-19 spread via aerosol transmission? That was the big debate all pandemic long among scientists around the world and in some cases is a debate still ongoing. Last week, Wired published a look at how one microscopic screw-up from 60 years ago was a leading cause of this major disagreement. And how small of a screw-up are we talking? About 5 microns. But let's back up. Quoting Wired, According to the medical canon, nearly all respiratory infections transmit through coughs or sneezes. Whenever a sick person hacks, bacteria and viruses spray out like bullets from a gun, quickly falling and sticking to any surface within a blast radius of three to six feet. If these droplets alight on a nose or mouth, or on a hand that then touches the face, they can cause an infection. Only a few diseases were thought to break this droplet rule. Measles and tuberculosis transmit a different way. They're described as airborne. Those pathogens travel inside aerosols, microscopic particles that can stay suspended for hours and travel longer distances. They can spread when contagious people simply breathe. The distinction between droplet and airborne transmission has enormous consequences. To combat droplets, a leading precaution is to wash hands frequently with soap and water. To fight infectious aerosols, the air itself is the enemy. In hospitals, that means expensive isolation wards and N95 masks for all medical staff. End quote. So when does a particle become defined as a droplet versus an aerosol? When it's larger than 5 microns in diameter. Anything under that is an aerosol. That's the standard used by the WHO and the CDC. But Lindsay Marr, an aerosol scientist at Virginia Tech who also studies infectious diseases, says the physics of that is all wrong. Before focusing on infectious diseases, Marr spent her career studying air pollution. She knows, as many institutional bodies accept, that particles of lots of different sizes from smokestacks and tailpipes can hang in the air, travel through the air, and be inhaled. When the pandemic kicked off, Marr was invited to a Zoom call with the WHO and other scientists from around the world, and she realized that they were adamant that COVID-19 was not airborne. It wasn't transmitted via aerosols. Which makes a bit of sense given their long-held standard about aerosols being defined as particles smaller than 5 microns. But Marr points out that size isn't the only variable. When you factor in heat, humidity, airspeed, and other real-life variables, particles much larger than 5 microns can behave like aerosols. And this idea wasn't something Marr just started working on or talking about when the coronavirus hit. In 2011, she tried to publish research she'd done installing air samplers in high-traffic places and showing how she'd found flu virus particles in places that most of the established literature said it wouldn't be found. The literature which says it's transmitted mostly through droplets when a person coughs onto your face or into their hand and then shakes your hand. Instead, she found particles hanging in the air, sometimes for hours after an infected person had left. 
Her research was rejected by most journals, however, as one of the few scientists in the world who bridges the gap between atmospheric physics and pathogens, neither field was too receptive to her work. Thinking it might help connect the dots, Marr was always on the lookout for the origin of this 5-micron distinction. No matter how deep she followed a lead in the medical literature, it never went back to an original source. There was no citation, no reason given, just repetitions of the statement as fact. And Marr was not the only one trying to sound the alarms about aerosol transmission of pathogens. Yu-Gi-Oh! Lee, an indoor air researcher at the University of Hong Kong, found strong evidence during the 2003 outbreak of SARS that coronaviruses could be airborne. His original finding was from an actual outbreak in Hong Kong in 2003, but when the public health community refused to listen, he ran simulations showing, quoting Wired, when a person coughed or sneezed, the heavy droplets were too few, and the targets, in open mouth, nostrils, eyes, too small to account for much infection, end quote. Marr was contacted to review Lee's paper for a journal. She wrote her review on the very same day that the Chinese government cut off travel in and out of Wuhan. Her and Lee's findings were no longer just theoretical. And the two of them wouldn't be the only ones trying to convince the WHO of the possibility of aerosol transmission in the early days of COVID-19. Jose Luis Jimenez, an atmospheric chemist at the University of Colorado Boulder, also went back through the archives and found that the social distancing guideline of staying three to six feet apart dated back to just a handful of studies from the 1930s and 40s. But even within those same studies, the authors often noted that airborne transmission was a serious possibility. Mar and Jimenez theorized that this six-foot distance had been calculated from the five-micron boundary, and that if the five-micron boundary was incorrect, so too would be the six-foot social distancing guideline. With the assistance of grad student Katie Randall, the team eventually managed to uncover the origins of the five-micron delineation through the work of mid-century Harvard engineer William Firth Wells, who got a bit of attention early on in the pandemic for his successful experiments preventing the spread of measles and tuberculosis using UV light. Wells spent much of his career conducting experiments to prove how tuberculosis spread via airborne transmission. In his and his wife's early experiments, they analyzed air samples and showed how particles smaller than 100 microns could stay in the air. 100 microns. Not 5. 100. Some of Wells' later work, as well as the work of other folks from around the time, indicated that the mucus in our noses and throats is mostly able to filter out particles bigger than 5 microns, but smaller ones can slip down into the lungs and cause us to fall ill. So that's great news, but the thing is, these experiments were conducted with regards to tuberculosis, a disease that is only able to invade a certain type of cell that lives deep within our lungs. Other diseases are less picky. They can infect plenty of other cells, including ones all along the respiratory tract that our nose and throat mucus might not filter out. Randall's hunch, after reviewing tons of literature from Wells and his critics, as well as that of public health officials throughout the 20th century, is that when Wells died shortly following one of his most groundbreaking experiments, other scientists at the CDC conflated his findings. They settled on 5 microns as the real danger zone and left out the 100 microns part. Then over time, that just got repeated over and over again as fact. 
Armed with this historical evidence to add to the various more recent scientific studies and a number of case studies specifically on COVID-19 transmission, in July, Mar, Jimenez, Lee, and 234 other scientists and physicians signed an open letter to the WHO and other public health authorities urging them to acknowledge airborne transmission and to issue stronger recommendations about masks and ventilation. Despite the controversy and uproar that the letter caused, the WHO did budge a little. It acknowledged the possibility of airborne transmission, but still said that masks were sufficient and only needed if distancing wasn't possible. Still, Marr and others kept pushing, successfully getting Dr. Fauci to acknowledge aerosols had been a much bigger, impactful factor than we'd realized for years. But for the most part, they weren't making enough headway. It took until October for the CDC to acknowledge aerosol spread and until December for the WHO to recommend wearing a mask indoors regardless of ability to distance. Now, to the WHO and CDC's credit, according to Lee, SARS-CoV-2 does not appear to be nearly as transmissible as other airborne diseases like measles, which infects 90% of people exposed to an infected person. Well-ventilated spaces go a long way, and SARS-CoV-2 doesn't travel that far long distance, so really it does behave quite a bit like a droplet-based pathogen some of the time. But he and others still hope that this recognition of airborne transmission for diseases previously thought not to be will re-emphasize the importance of ventilation in public health policy writ large. It's something that can help prevent many other diseases, not just COVID-19. And there's some hope for that. In recent weeks, both the WHO and CDC quietly amended their COVID-19 guidance pages to include aerosols as among the top ways COVID-19 is spread. And according to the WHO's Maria Van Kerkhove, the organization does plan to review its definitions for disease transmission in general this year. As Marr and Lee wrote in an editorial in the journal The BMJ, which they were invited to publish just before the WHO updated their guidance in April, quote, Improved indoor air quality through better ventilation will bring other benefits, including reduced sick leave for other respiratory viruses and even environmentally related complaints such as allergies and sick building syndrome. And particularly in healthcare, work, and educational environments, it will help all of us to stay safe now and in the future. End quote. The world recently passed a huge milestone, the 20th anniversary of the theatrical release of Shrek. How is it that we're still talking about Shrek 20 years later? How has it endured through the generations and become such a long-running hallmark of internet humor? BuzzFeed News recently peeled back the oniony layers explaining just why Shrek became such a cultural touchstone. So BuzzFeed News starts by pointing out that Shrek is a truly edgy and subversive kids movie with plenty of Nickelodeon-style gross-out humor from the very first moments of the movie's opening scene in Shrek's outhouse and muddy lake-cum-bathtub. Throughout the movie, classic fairy tale characters are turned on their heads and put into more adult situations, ones which were funny to parents and made kids feel like they were getting away with watching something they shouldn't have been. Quoting BuzzFeed, Perhaps Shrek gets its edge from the fact that it's in part an F.U. The movie was the pet project of Jeffrey Katzenberg, who co-founded DreamWorks Animation after leaving Disney in a bitter public battle after being passed over for a top job. Shrek has been interpreted as a sort of animated kiss-my-ass-from-Katzenberg to then-Disney CEO Michael Eisner. 
Plenty of people have commented on the resemblance between Eisner and the movie's villain, Lord Farquaad, end quote. And that intentional edginess from Katzenberg trying to be anti-Disney runs deep throughout the story and its production. Katzenberg was apparently adamant that he wanted the 1999 Smash Mouth hit All-Star to play during the opening credits. Smash Mouth originally didn't want to lend their music to a family film. I mean, don't forget, the single originally debuted in the decidedly not family-friendly Mystery Men. But after viewing a cut of the movie, the band was so into it, they even agreed to record an extra track for the end of the movie, the now infamous cover of the Monkees' I'm a Believer. And another factor in Shrek's edgy and gross-out humor can be credited to Mike Myers. Now, as many of you may know, Shrek was originally voiced by Chris Farley, and he actually recorded most of the film before he passed away in 1997. Quoting BuzzFeed, those who worked on Farley's Shrek say it was sweet. It follows a young Shrek as he struggles to break from the family trade of scaring people. And Farley played Shrek in an uncharacteristically earnest and vulnerable way. End quote. A pretty different film than that of grown-up curmudgeonly hermit Shrek. After Farley's death, the studio went through a lot of possible replacements, including Nick Cage and Leonardo DiCaprio, which... Wow, I would pay money to see either one of those. Now, when Mike Myers eventually landed the gig, he apparently wanted to rewrite the whole thing. The movie got the full Austin Powers bathroom humor treatment. In addition to Myers' demands for a rewrite, there was also essentially a game of trying to make director Katzenberg break into laughter when writers pitched him ideas. So you can kind of see how the gags kept upping the ante. Quoting again, in hindsight, some of this chaos worked its way into the movie. While Shrek still hangs together fairly well, it rapidly detours through vignettes that pushed the edge in ways that didn't always serve the story. Tangents like the gingerbread man scene, or the upsetting part where a singing bird blows up, or the cheerful welcome to Duloc song. The gags are hilarious and form the lasting legacy of the movie, but they're several shades darker and more crude than the main storyline, a moving story about self-acceptance and the courage to love yourself in the face of a world that won't love you. This frenetic energy is what gives Shrek that something-for-everyone vibe. It somehow hit the sweet spot for the young children it was made for, the critics who loved it, and, in my case, the snarky preteens who were growing dissatisfied with what children's movies had to offer and wanted to see the whole earnest animation enterprise blown to smithereens." End quote. And given I, too, was one of those snarky preteens when it came out, I wasn't aware that it was so critically acclaimed. Apparently, Roger Ebert and the New York Times alike loved it. It was an immediate critical success and a box office hit. And it was even picked to premiere at Cannes. That's how weird 2001 was. Shrek premiered at the Cannes Film Festival alongside Mulholland Drive and then went on to win the first ever Oscar for Best Animated Feature. Presumably, that category was created just for Shrek because everyone knew that it would sweep all the award categories and they wouldn't accept that, so they just created its own category to keep it in its place. You know, just like the New York Times created the young adult bestseller list so that Harry Potter would stop taking over the real bestseller list. Okay, that Oscars and Shrek thing I just made up, but the Harry Potter thing is true. Anyways, Shrek was an immediate success, and that explains why it had sequel after sequel, endless spin-offs and games and merch for the next decade and a half. But does all of that alone explain how Shrek has endured as an invincible meme? 
BuzzFeed News argues that Shrek changed the game for animated films and movie soundtracks, but also that it was, quote, an early signal to the kind of humor the internet loves, end quote. Apart from the utter absurdity of much of Shrek and the way it references both classic and contemporary pop culture in ways clever, punny, and weird, it was also a movie with early roots in remixing. And the movie itself is remix culture, throwing together all the different fairy tale characters and giving them a new adventure together. But beyond the story universe, there were both official and unofficial transformative works happening early on. All the spinoffs and such, sure, but also the official Shrek Facebook page in 2009, which occasionally posted weird status updates from Shrek himself. And then there's Smash Mouth, who sometimes say that they feel like they started the whole all-star remixing meme hype since they recorded 10 different versions of the song themselves. And it didn't take long before people created fan art, costumes, memes, fanfic, music, festivals, and frame-by-frame -frame remakes of Shrek. Writing in 2016, Kotaku theorizes that Shrek continues to embody the kind of F.U. spirit Katzenberg was leveling against Disney, but manifested for anyone online who kind of rages against the system. Preteens shaking off the sanitized media of their childhood, and people of any age who feel like an outsider but also want to be part of something larger. And part of the charm of Shrek is its ridiculousness, you know, just imagining that such an absurd creature and movie was ever made by a real Hollywood studio. As Kotaku says, quote, Shrek was the big screen embodiment of new millennium toilet garbage, end quote. And quoting further, in many ways, the Shrek meme imitates the Shrek movie franchise, the thing it was both directly and indirectly born of. Its humor often relies on cheap shock gags and references, and it's rooted in layers and layers of ironic detachment." End quote. Shrek has become so much more than just that original movie. But that movie, that after a long and sometimes tragic journey finally made its way to the silver screen 20 years ago, was what started it all. Quoting once more from BuzzFeed News, It subverted the machinery of animated fairy tales by questioning who they're for in the first place. It let us briefly have a laugh at the Disney-fied views we grew up with, and it urged us to ditch them for the green, ugly truth, that we may all be deeply flawed in irreparable ways, but we still deserve to love ourselves. Shrek forever. End quote. So two cool pieces of video game news today. First, Final Fantasy XV director Hajime Tabata's latest game, The Pegasus Dream Tour, is finally coming out next month. It was originally slated to be released alongside the Tokyo Olympic Games, which of course have been delayed by the pandemic, so the game was as well. The Pegasus Dream Tour is a mobile-based avatar RPG game featuring the Paralympic Games. So, quoting The Verge, you can create a character based on a selfie from your phone and train them in various para-sports. The game features illustrated versions of nine real-world para-athletes who compete in sports like javelin, athletics, and wheelchair basketball." End quote. It's the first video game to be licensed by the official Paralympics, and some proceeds from in-app purchases will go towards the Ajitos Foundation, which helps people with disabilities get involved in sports. And in other video game news, on its 50th anniversary, a new version of The Oregon Trail dropped last month, and it features a long overdue update on its representation of Native Americans in the game. 
Gameloft, the company, and creative director Gerard Trudgeon worked with Native American historians to wipe the game of insensitive and inaccurate stereotypes, including the characters' dress, hairstyles, weaponry, and names. Native Americans are no longer the villains in this updated version like they were in many early editions, but your character can, of course, still die of dysentery. But that is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.